0: Father, as Matt was reading the scripture earlier, it, uh, that verse sort of leaped off the screen in my mind and sort of applied itself to my heart. And when Jesus said, Lord, we've heard the words before, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Father, I think about what Jesus said there. He didn't say I'd come that they'd have life easy, that they'd have life comfortably, that we'd have lives where everything happens exactly the way we want exactly the time and the order we want it to unfold, but you did say we'd have life abundantly and you added no qualifications to that whatsoever. You said that when we would put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we'd find in Him the sacrifice, the redemption from sins, Father, the cleansing and the forgiveness that, that only He can bring, that that brings us, Lord, into an entirely new kind of life, that the old passes away, that the new comes. We're new creations in Him because of Your grace, because of, as we just sang now, how good, how good You are. And Father, it is good this morning for us. We, we acknowledge and Father, we agree it is so good to be called Your child to know that through Jesus Christ, we're sons and daughters of Almighty God, that we belong to you and that's never going to change. And Father, what we know here in part, in eternity, we're going to know in full and it's going to be bigger and better and greater than we can possibly imagine. And Lord, we know it has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with Christ. And so Father, it's him we worship and it's him we celebrate and it's him that we want to continue to to turn and focus our attention on as we open up your word together this morning. Father, Jesus has done so much. He's done everything necessary for us to have this abundant life. And and Father, you've given us your word to show us how that abundant life is to be lived, how to find Christ and then live for him in a, a dying and sick and a desperate world. And so, Father, that's why we come back to it again one more time. We open your word believing that if if your word is is preached clearly, Father, and and even if it's not, even if it's preached haltingly, but if we have your eternal word open and and you are pleased to send your Holy Spirit among us, Father, that you'll do great things in each and every one of our lives to make us less like who we were and more like Jesus Christ. And so, Father, for the next few minutes as we open the scriptures, that's my prayer that that's exactly what would happen that your Holy Spirit would come and guide us in truth. Father, the beautiful, wonderful truth of your word, that your Spirit would guard us from misunderstanding, from error, confusion, from being led astray. Father, that even in this moment, you would deliver our hearts from whatever is going to get in the way, whatever's clouding our eyes, Father, whatever's uh, stopping up our ears, whatever we carried in with us, Lord, sweep it aside so that for the next few minutes we get to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Lord, we're going to leave here in just a little while and we want to leave rejoicing. As always, not because we came to church, because we sang pretty songs or heard a message that gave us something to think about, but because in and through all of that we got to meet with Jesus, the one who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and take it up again. And it's him we praise and it's him we ask to teach us now. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it all. Amen you may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's go ahead and dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. As always, Children's Church is for our five-year-olds. up to our second graders. I want everybody else to grab your Bible and turn with me this morning to Psalm 95 as we continue this look, uh, sort of this survey of the Psalms and what the book of Psalms and Uh, What they uh, many of them contain, how they can teach us and lead us in conversation with God. What does it mean to converse with God? What does it mean to pray? And and how can we pray to Him in any and every season of life? We're going to press on in doing so this morning. And as you're making your way there, take you just a minute. Psalm 95 is where I want you to go in the Bible. I want to remind you that this week coming up, maybe you noticed it in the bulletin or saw it uh, prior to the service, this week we have another opportunity to come together and practice what we're preaching. We have a Fresh Encounter prayer gathering Wednesday night at 7 over in the Commons prayer room. And I want to encourage you, in fact I challenge you, you may remember this, a month ago I said over the next couple of months there are seven prayer gatherings. We're now down to six. And they are in the next 35 days. I looked at my calendar this morning. There's one this Wednesday there's one the first Wednesday of, of April, but also coming up on Holy Week. We're going to have four, uh, just as we did last week, four nightly prayer gatherings to prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for the celebration of Christ's resurrection. And again, my challenge to you is this, make one of them. You've got six chances in the next 35 days to join us for a prayer gathering. Again, it's one thing to study God's Word, to write down principles, to get a big idea. It's quite another to put them into practice, and we are inviting you to join us if you can, this Wednesday night or at one of these upcoming prayer gatherings where we're going to put into practice what it is we've been studying in God's Word. And remember, we're not to be hearers, only we are to be doers. So that's my exhortation to you. Now let's get into the Scriptures. Psalm 95, shorter psalm than we've been in the past couple of Sundays, but wow, is it a good one. I want you to follow along as I just read it in its entirety to get our time going here this morning. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. We do not know who wrote this psalm, but we do know what it says, which is this. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you'd hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as, a, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. You know, this past Friday morning as I was leaving for work, coming in for our Friday morning prayer meeting, and then to, to really sort of get uh, the, the sermon for, for this morning put together. As I was walking out the door, my wife was sitting on the couch, and she said to me, which psalm is it we are, uh, we're going to be in this Sunday again? She said, I don't remember for sure. Which psalm are we looking at this Sunday? I said, Psalm 95. She said, that's what I thought, and I was, I was just looking at it here, thinking that that's the one you're going to be doing. She said, why are you preaching Psalm 95? And as I was literally walking out the door, I stopped and I looked at her and I smiled and I said, honestly, hon, I have absolutely no idea <laughs> why I'm preaching from Psalm 95. And, and, I, and she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, well, sometime between last August when I sort of mapped this sermon series out and last week when I realized Psalm 95 was up next, I lost my notes. Uh, the notes where I sketched out which psalms, I, I knew which psalms I was going to do, but the notes that said why and what the point was and why it appealed to me. And I said, I have no idea why we're looking at Psalm 95. I just know that last summer it seemed like a good idea, and, and so we're going with it. We're going to figure this thing out. And, and so that's sort of where I came into the Psalm this week. But as I have examined it more closely, as I have read and reread and reread this Psalm, I have discovered, and it really wasn't hard to figure out, you would do the same if, as you read it over as well. But as I've examined it more closely over the last several days, I've seen that despite not knowing, because it doesn't tell us who wrote this psalm, and despite not knowing anything about the circumstances behind it that inspired it, that, that caused these words to be written down and recorded for us in the Scriptures, this is, in fact, Psalm 95, a chapter, a psalm with many lessons for the people of God, with many things to say to us as we seek to walk with and worship Him in this world but what I've also figured out as I've drilled into it more deeply is that the lesson that I settled on I know is not a lesson I had in mind last summer. In fact, I know it's not even a lesson I had in mind last week when I realized once again that Psalm 95 was coming. Because what I discovered and what I want to share with you this morning from this particular psalm, this may not be the lesson you take away from it, it's probably not the biggest lesson this psalm has to teach, but I think it's one of the very important ones, is that Psalm 95 is a psalm with something to offer us in those seasons when we don't want to pray. Psalm 95 has something to say to us when in our walk with Jesus Christ, we don't want to pray. Because the truth of the matter is this, listen close, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't want to pray uh, for whatever the reason may be. Now, it may be that on one hand, that there's no particular crisis in our lives. There's nothing urgent. There's no problem. There's no question. There's no mystery. There's nothing where we're going, Lord, what am I supposed to do now? How are we going to figure this out? And so we aren't compelled to pray. Maybe at the other end of the spectrum, we're in a hard season in life, and, and we can't come up with 10, much less 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord, oh my soul. And, and we don't have anything, we don't feel like we can go to Him and say, Lord, I'm so thankful for this and grateful for that. No, life is hard. And so sometimes when that happens, we just don't want to pray. A lot of the time, and this is probably one of those things we don't like to say out loud, but we know internally is true, sometimes we're just lazy. Sometimes we're just indifferent. Prayer seems like a lot of work, and I can think of easier things to do. I can think of things that demand less of my time and energy and concentration. It's just more effort than I feel like I care to give. Listen, I'm not saying it's admirable. (laughs) I'm just saying it's a fact. Sometimes, as followers of Jesus Christ, The call of verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 95 to come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, to come before his presence with thanksgiving and shout joyfully to him with psalms. Sometimes that incredibly wonderful, beautiful call to worship to pray is met with little more than a shrug of the shoulders. Have a good time. (laughs) Hope you all enjoy yourselves. I'm not feeling it today. Maybe I'll catch you next time around. Sometimes we just don't want to pray. But again, I think Psalm 95 has something to say to us in those seasons. And again, remember the point of this series. We're looking at the Psalms to teach us how to converse with God in every season of life. And prayerless seasons are a reality in the lives of the believer. Again, they're not admirable. They're not something we should pursue, certainly, but they happen. And Psalm 95 has counsel for such moments when we really don't feel like praying. And and its counsel really, I believe, at least for our purposes this morning, boils down to three things. It says there are three things we should do. In those seasons when we don't feel like praying, we don't want to pray, we, maybe we aren't even sure why, but this psalm calls us to do three things to remedy the problem, to address it. And I believe that if we will listen and do them, it helps. And it can turn things around. The first one is this. First thing this psalm says to us, in seasons when we don't feel like praying, when we don't feel compelled, or, or like it's an important thing to do, or maybe it's, it's just that we don't know how, the first thing this psalm says in verses 3, 4, and 5 is to take a step back and focus, number one, on God's indescribable glory. You can't think of things to pray for or about, you may not be able to think of things to praise Him for in your life, but you can always focus on His indescribable glory. You know, if you've been around here a while, you've heard me say before, haven't said it recently, but you've heard me say before that I only in my life use the word awesome when I'm talking about God. I don't use it to describe anything else in my life. And while that's not a rule that, that I apply to anyone other than my kids, they have to follow it in my house. Uh, that, that I don't say awesome about anything other than God. I do that. I made that decision a long time ago. I was challenged to do it, to say when I use that word awesome, I should only use it in reference to God. I made that distinction because I wanted to maintain some sort of difference just for myself, in my mind and in my heart, between the way I feel about Almighty God and the way I feel about chocolate chip cookies, right? God is awesome. Cookies are awesome. They are not in any way equal. And I wanted a word in my vocabulary that maintained or helped me to maintain that distinction. And while I'm not interested in taking a scissors to the English dictionary and saying you should only use these words in reference to God and and, and you shouldn't, uh, you should only use these other words in references to other things, sometimes I do feel, even so, the way I feel about awesome is the way I feel about the word great when it's used in a verse like Psalm 95.3. Look at your Bible again at what it says. Psalm 95.3 says this to us. It says, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In our culture lately, maybe you've noticed there's been a lot of talk about making America what again? great again. Let's make America great again. I think it's found somewhere in the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm not sure. (laughs) You let me know. But as believers in Jesus Christ, I think that in a far more serious and worshipful way, and hopefully you understand what I mean when I say this, in our minds and our hearts, we need to make God great again. There are times when we need to, in our under, not because he isn't great, but because we don't think of him that way as we ought to, we need to, in our minds and our hearts, think of God as truly great again. Because I believe our prayer lives could be rejuvenated, revitalized, reignited, or maybe ignited for the first time if we really understood what the Bible meant when it said in verse three that God is a great God. And a great king above all other so called gods. Because here's how it unpacks it in the next couple of verses, four and five. It says, Look again at your Bible. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Here's what we're told about him For in his hand are the depths of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Who has? Who here has been to the Grand Canyon? So you know what? When I say the Grand Canyon, you're you're talking big, right? Really, really big hole in the ground, okay? Well, what what we're being told here at the beginning of verse 4 is this, that the Grand Canyon, as vast and expansive and as incredibly indescribable as it is, that the Grand Canyon itself, along with every other canyon, valley, and frankly, ditch on the face of the earth, as far as God's concerned, all of it fits right here. That's what the Bible means when it says he is a great God. The depths of the earth are in his hand. Look at the rest of the verse. It says uh, in, the, in the next line of that very same verse 4, the peaks of the mountains are his also. Now, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I have been to the top of Pikes Peak. I was there with my family a couple of years ago, and I stood on a spot on the top of that incredible 14,000-foot mountain where if you turn to the east, you can see Kansas. You turn 90 degrees to the south, you can see New Mexico really high, really big, really vast. That's just one mountain. What's this verse saying? It's saying that all the peaks on earth are the Lord's. The canyons are in one hand, the mountains are in the other, and it's no big deal to him. Does that make verse 3 sound different? The Lord our God is a great God and a great king above all gods. It says the the valleys, the, the canyons, the, the depths of the earth are in his hand. The peaks of the mountains are in it also. Verse 5, the sea is his, for it was he who made us. You've been to the ocean. You've driven past Lake Michigan. You've perhaps stood on the edge of a body of water where you look out across it and you can't see the other side. And again, what verse 5 is telling us here is that all the waters on all of planet earth just water in a dish and a bowl to God. It's all right here. It's no big thing. Because the Lord our God is a great God and a great king above all gods. The the sea is his, for it was he who made it. Look at the rest of verse 5. And his hands formed the dry land as well. You know, most people disagree with me when I say it, but some of the most beautiful and worshipful days of my life have been spent driving across the plains of Nebraska, all right? I I know I'm in like the, the real big minority on that one. But some of the most beautiful and worshipful days of my life have been spent driving across plains, sunny days, where you can't see, I mean, either direction, in front of you, behind you, to either side, you just see wide open spaces, big blue skies. And I know most people say, that's boring, it's dull, it's flyover country, give me something to look at, it's so uninteresting. I see something very different. I see a, a panorama that my God stretched from one end to the other. And not only did he stretch it from one end to the other, he knows where every blade of grass, pebble, stick, little piece of dirt, field mouse, and sparrow is on it, and exactly what it's doing all the time. The Lord our God is a what? A great God. He's an awesome God. He is so much bigger and better than we think. And that's what I mean when I say that maybe we need to take this psalm's counsel when we're feeling prayerless and we're feeling dry. And we're like, I don't really have a whole lot to pray about. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do, because the Lord our God is a great God. And he is a great king above all gods. And what the psalmist is telling us in the span of just two verses is that all of creation was made by him and for him, and all of it expresses his glory. And I would simply and humbly suggest to you this morning that a brand new devotional from the bookstore is no match for five minutes spent pondering God's creation. You may not have the ability to go to the Grand Canyon or Pikes Peak. You can get a lawn chair and look at a tree. (laughs) You can see his handiwork. The Lord our God is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. And when it comes to to igniting or reigniting a, a prayerless life, The first thing, the most important thing this psalm tells us to do is says focus on his indescribable glory. You may not have a long list of requests, you may not have a long list of praises, but you have a great God who's worthy of all of our praise. Number one, focus, it says, on God's indescribable glory. Second, it says, in verses 6 and 7, A second thing we can do, when we don't feel like praying, when we're trying to find the motivation, the desire, a place to start, we can first of all focus on his indescribable glory. Secondly, the psalm says we can then dwell on God's immeasurable grace. We can dwell upon God's ponder, his immeasurable grace. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We're the people of his pasture, and we are the sheep of his hand. Now think about what the psalmist just said. Because what did he say? Look again at your Bible. He said that the same awesome hands that formed the earth, that holds all of it, valleys, mountains, seas, dry land, all of it in the palm of his hand, he says those very same hands hold each one of us who's found salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The hands that hold all of creation hold you and me as believers as well. John Stott says, far above us in his greatness, he is also close to us in his goodness. And so what verse 6 is really saying to us in those seasons when we don't feel like praying, when we just aren't interested, we're dry, whatever the case may be, the psalmist says in these two verses, pause from whatever else you're doing, whatever else has your attention this morning we in the moment and dwell on the astounding reality that because he is our God, we're the people of his hand. Because he is our God, we are the people of his hand. Because that's, listen, that is more than merely a statement of fact. It's, it's more than merely just a, a doctrinal truth. It's a, it's a declaration of relationship. It's a declaration of personal relationship. Because what it's saying is if you, and we talk about this all the time, but again, we don't stop and think about it all the time. But it says, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sin and you've received him as Savior, you are his daughter, you are his son. You belong to his family forever. And not only are you his child, his daughter or son, but this verse is also saying, talking about the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, that we are family with one another, brothers and, Jesus, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ as well. That is immeasurable Grace immeasurable grace it's not just what he has saved us from it is what he has saved us to and for as well and really when i look at verses six and seven or again as i really dug into them and thought about them this week uh, the thought came uh, in the context of what this psalm is saying is that what god is telling us here is this as a believer this is where you belong this is what you were created for This is the place in the family of God where you accomplish what he created you to do, where you become what he called you and created you to be. It's in the family of God and nowhere else. As his child, as part of the family, to me that's the very definition of immeasurable grace. I deserve nothing and what? I've been given everything. And Again, I humbly submit to you, thinking about that can reignite a stagnant prayer life. Thinking about that, dwelling on that, his, his indescribable glory and his immeasurable grace can take us from a place of, of dullness and indifference into to light of fire in our heart, not just for him but for conversing with him, for praying to him all over again. Then there's one more thing this psalm says we want to look at and give our attention to before we're done. One more thing that Psalm 95 tells us when we don't really feel like praying, yes, most importantly, focus on who He is. Then secondly, we just saw focus just right after that on what He has done for us. But in the final verses, really the, the end of verse 7 down through the end of the chapter, the third bit of counsel Psalm 95 gives us when we don't feel like praying is this, learn from those who've been there before. We need to learn Pay attention to those who've been in that same place before. You know, if you were following along closely when I read through this psalm, when we read it together here a few minutes ago at the beginning of the message, you may have noticed that right in the middle, not even between two verses, but in the middle of verse 7, there is a dramatic shift in tone. Uh, It's sort of going one way, and then it goes another. Up until the middle of verse 7, this whole psalm, it's joy, it's celebration, it's sweetness, and it's light, and then suddenly there's this hard turn. All of a sudden, and really with no warning whatsoever, and and this is what we're told, just listen to the shift again, verse 7, for he is our God, look at your Bible, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, what wonderful news, what incredible truth, and then... The psalmist, whoever they may have been, said this. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know, it's possible to look at that and go, did we make a wrong turn somewhere? (laughs) It was all going so good in this psalm, and now it's so hard. It's like this great big, talking about God's hand, his creative hand, his saving hand. This is his great big hand of caution and warning. He says, if you've listened to what has been said so far, do not harden your heart. And I want you to know that the warning we are given here is a thoroughly appropriate one, given what we saw in the first six verses. That though it seems odd and out of place and very abrupt, it's exactly what we as believers need to hear God say. Because here's the background of really the rest, the remaining verses in this psalm. What we're going to do, and we'll look at the rest, we'll reread these verses here in just a moment, is is the last part of Psalm 95 takes us back to the Old Testament. Specifically, it takes us back to the time of the Exodus, when God's people were set free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And, And what the Bible tells us from Exodus through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is that through that season, that time of the exodus, God's mandate, God's instruction to his people was very, very simple. He said, here's how our relationship is going to work. I'm summarizing a whole bunch of law down into three words. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. And obey. God said, "It's a really simple equation. Here's how life is going to work. If you listen to what I tell you to do, if you read out my commandments, understand what they say, and then you go out, live your life, and obey them. Listen, it's all going to be good. That is the path to true blessing. That is the way in the Old Testament to abundant life. Hear what God says and do it. It could not have been any simpler." What does the book of Exodus and the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even beyond tell us? That that the children of Israel for those next 40 years constantly, repeatedly, unbelievably found new and creative ways to screw the equation up (laughs) over and over and over In fact, if you go read the story of the Exodus, getting into about Exodus 15, 16, and 17, you find that literally three days after they crossed the Red Sea, three days they rebelled against him. After seeing the waters part, crossing on dry land, and then seeing the sea come back down and wiping out their Egyptian enemies forever. And from that moment on, time and again, the children of Israel messed that equation up. And two of them are cited in verse 8. Two of those specific occasions among many that, that God could have brought to our attention. But look again at what it says. It says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah. Now, that was a, a place early on in the Exodus, shortly after they'd left Egypt, near the beginning of their 40 years of wandering. And then it goes on from there, saying, as well as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, which was an occasion near the end of their 40 years of wilderness wandering, shortly before they went into the promised land. But what both of those two events have in common, mirabah at the beginning, Massa at the end, along with a whole bunch of other unnamed occasions in between, is that those were occasions where the children of Israel griped that God wasn't taking care of them. That God wasn't doing for them what he should And they would gripe about their food, and they would gripe about their water, and they would gripe that Moses was a a, a foolish and, and an ineffective and a worthless leader. They'd even get to the point on both of those occasions and many others where they just said, Lord, we just long for the glory days of Egypt again. Oh, how good it was to be making bricks out of straw, to have our children taken from us, to be worked mercilessly and without payment. Oh, it was so, just take us back. The wilderness is so hard. And it got so bad that God's assessment in verse 10 was this. Look at it. These are hard words to see in the Bible. God says, for 40 years I loathed that generation. Really? God loathed that generation? That to loathe? He despised them? Well, Yeah, actually that's... Exactly what he means. The God who loved the world so much to give us His one and only Son, that whoever might believe in Him shouldn't perish but have eternal life, despised His own precious, chosen people. So, what's going on here? How's that possible? Well, the Hebrew term for loathe it has a, a dual meaning. It also means grieved. To loathe and grieve, and I think both are in play in this verse. And what it's really showing us, what the expression or what's being said to us in verse 10, what God is saying to us about his people in verse 10, is that their constant, persistent, unending rebellion against him, their thanklessness towards him, their sin tore his heart to pieces that it actually tore God's heart to pieces to see the way his people rebelled and rejected him. Because despite all the miracles and and the protection and the daily provision he'd given them, despite loving them and protecting them and setting them free from four centuries of brutal slavery, what he saw saw as his people wandered through the wilderness is that they had very, very short memories that very quickly degenerated into extremely hard hearts. That a reluctance or a resistance to pray very quickly became refusal. Let me break it down another way. Here's what happened. As they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land for 40 years, God's people encountered problems. God's people always encounter problems. Life is hard. But more often than not, what God's people did when they encountered problems, shortages, needs, dilemmas, rather than run to him in prayer and seeking his help, it was to take matters into their own hands. We'll figure this one out ourselves. We'll sit down and we'll map it out, and we'll we're gonna. And of course, does that work? No, or at least not for very long. And when it didn't work out, as it inevitably doesn't, taking a matter that belongs to God into our own hands that we should have prayed about, but we chose not to. When it didn't work out, they still didn't go to God. Instead, they blamed it on God. It's his fault. He's not feeding us. He's not taking care of us. He's not leading us there fast enough. And it's all his fault. And again, that's why what began as a reluctance or resistance to seeking his face blossomed into open refusal and a generation of hardened hearts. And the warning here at the end of such an otherwise beautiful psalm about the glory of God and the gift of salvation and the wonderful relationship that we can have with him, the warning, the reason God told us, and, and you'll notice from verse, about the middle of verse 7 on or verse 8 on, it's God's voice doing the speaking. The reason God put us here is to warn us about the dangers of continuing continuing to willingly live prayerless lives, to try to do it ourselves, rather than seek him. He is our God. We're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden heart. Don't let indifference turn into refusal. Listen, it is no crime, I don't think it's a sin, to acknowledge that our spiritual lives ebb and flow. That our prayer lives ebb and flow. There are high points and there are low points. There are rich seasons and there are dry ones. There are hard times and there are good times. There are times when it's easy to pray and seek God, and there are times when it's very, very hard. That's called being human. That's called life on this planet. Our spiritual lives they ebb and they flow, because life ebbs and flows. Some seasons are better than others. And sometimes in those seasons, there are times we really don't want to pray. But the crucial thing, what this psalm is telling us, again, the psalms teach us how to pray in every season of life. They teach us how to deal with, converse with God, no matter what we're facing or what we're doing. But what this psalm is telling us is the crucial thing is this. When God brings it to your attention, do something about it. Respond to him. If he is showing you, yeah, you're not seeking me. You're trying to figure it out yourself. You don't bring me your problems, but you don't bring me your praises either. If if, if you're starting to ask yourself the question, why am I indifferent? Why don't I want to pray? Why don't I want to pray with other people? Why don't I want to seek his face? If today you hear his voice, what? Don't let it go. Don't harden your heart. Don't wait another Sunday. Don't wait another year. Because you don't know how it could turn sideways on you. And it can. And it will. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because frankly, wherever you are in your walk with him this morning, whether it's going really, really good or it's really, really hard, it's really, really rich or it's really, really dry, frankly, the bottom line is this. It's never a waste of time to focus on God's indescribable glory. It's never a waste of time to dwell on his immeasurable grace. And it is never, ever a waste of time to listen to and learn from those who have been there before respond to god's hand of caution that says beware the direction you're headed come back to me see the big idea of the message psalm 95 as we've looked at it this morning this is what we need to remember i think this is what this psalm is telling us is that prayer which i honestly and for so many years i did as well we look at it as a chore as a discipline as a task something really hard prayer becomes a joy when we remember that it's a privilege prayer becomes a joy it regains its joy it regains its vibrancy its appeal when we remember it's not a duty it's a privilege i get to talk to almighty god i get to converse with the one who made it all holds it all and is going to work it all out and he's going to take me with him remember it's a privilege that he has given to us father My prayer this morning is that you take your word, the truth of your word and the things spoken here of it and that you would apply it and seal it to each one of our hearts. That you take the things of error and and irrelevance and let them be forgotten. Father, we recognize that in many of our lives, many times in our lives, prayer does seem like a duty. It seems like hard work. And sometimes it is, maybe for good reason. But Father, would you remind us and would you Sink deep into our souls this morning the truth that conversing with Almighty God is the Mm. biggest privilege of all. It's an incredible blessing and opportunity, and something you've given us because you want us to spend time in your presence. Father, for those who maybe their heart has been reminded, they've been reminded in their heart this morning or shown. The danger of a prayerless life, Lord, that you have spoken in a way that only you can to them. If today anyone here has heard your voice, oh God, don't let us harden our hearts. Lord, we want to be a house of prayer, but we want to be men and women and young people of prayer as well, who converse freely and openly and, above all, joyfully with you. Father, thank you that you really are a great God and a great King above all gods who is worthy of all our praise. Father, may we take that, above all else, with us into this new week.